Welcome to the Nashville Vineyard Podcast. For more information, please check us out at www.nashvillevineyard.org. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you have a great day. Listen, it's Easter. That's a fun day. And we're kicking off a, a new series uh, today and over the next few weeks that we're calling Encounter. And we're going to be going over and, and talking about uh, the different encounters that people had with Jesus after he rose from the dead that we find uh, in the New Testament. There's stories of Jesus encountering uh, people all throughout the scriptures after he had risen. And so we're going to take a moment uh, as we move into the summer to, to look and examine some of the different times that Jesus encountered his people after he rose from the dead, which is, by the way, what we're celebrating today at Easter. Easter is the day, if you're not aware, that the Christian church comes together and we celebrate the fact that on Friday Jesus was crucified and on Sunday today he rose again. And it's an amazing thing, and, and we're going to talk about what is involved in the resurrection today. We're, we're going to, to begin to, to look at the overarching theme of the scriptures so that we can better understand the importance of today. Why do we celebrate, and, and what does it mean? And so we're going to be looking really at three threads that run throughout the scriptures that, that culminate and come together on Easter when Christ rose from the dead today. And we're going to be looking throughout the whole of Scripture to see just why today is so meaningful, so important, and why today is the climactic ending of the, of the greatest story that's ever been told. And so to start at that, we're going to have to start at the beginning. So we're, we're going to be looking through a lot of Scripture today, but you're lucky you can follow along on the screen or you can fact check me on your phones or in the Bibles in front of you as we move along. But we want to start at the beginning so that we can see and understand how the resurrection really does change everything. Before we do, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. We thank you for sending your son. We thank you that he died for our sins and that he rose again. What an incredible, incredible honor that we have to come together and worship you. We bless your name, Father. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to come, and we just declare, Jesus, this is your church. It belongs to you. And Holy Spirit, have your way. In your name we pray. Amen. So we're going to be looking at three different themes and threads that, that run throughout scriptures that find their culmination in the resurrection. We're going to be looking at our relationship with God, our identity in God, and our destiny with God. And so we're going to pick up in the book of Genesis. We actually get to see a picture of the, of the unbelievable reality that the God of the universe, the God that created everything, wanted a relationship with us. He destined us for a relationship with, with him. So much so that we see in the narrative as, as he's uh, speaking things into existence over and over, let there be light, let there be dark, let there be aardvarks, all of these sort of things that he's just proclaiming. I guess he said that. And he, and he, and he begins to, to speak the world into existence. He does something different when it comes to mankind. He, he bends down and he forms us out of the earth with his own hands. And he breathes into us this breath of life. And, and he declares a blessing over us. He is 
crazy about us. He desires intimacy and a relationship with us. It was our original purpose. It was what we were created for, is to be in perfect, wonderful relationship with this all-encompassing, powerful God. It's amazing. We see a picture of this in Genesis 3.8. This is after the fall, but we get an idea of the kind of intimacy that God determined for us to have that was available for us with this story. And it says, they, that's Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the garden in the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Just think for a moment the history and the intimacy that's required to be able to hear someone's paces and know just who they are. The closeness that's required in that. The, the intimate nature of that very thing. There's only a few people on this planet that I can hear coming and know exactly who they are. It was that kind of a relationship that we were originally designed for. And out of that relationship, we were able to get our original purpose, our original identity. We see when, when God created man, he pronounces the identity over us, and it was that identity that we were called to live into. You can see in Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth and every creepy thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created him. So God stoops down and he bends down and he creates us to have relationship with us and he forms us in his image and in his likeness. We were meant to look and to act like him. In perfect relationship, in perfect unity with him. That was the point of everything. And then out of that relational intimacy, out of that identity that he proclaimed over us, he, he then pronounced a destiny over our lives. We see it here in the same verse. It says, let them have dominion or to rule and to reign over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth. God created us to create. He created us to co-labor with him, to rule and reign alongside of him. This was his original plan. This was why we're here. That was the point. But if you know the story, we fell. And sin entered the world. And these three themes, these three purposes became fallen. They became distorted. We see that our identity and our relationship and our destiny were changed. Relationally, we were, we were cast out of the garden. We were estranged. We were, we were no longer permitted to be in the relational closeness of this incredible God. It's why that, that no one really comes to the grips that are unbelievers, that no one naturally thinks that God must really love me and be crazy about me. No, what do they think? We think that God may or may not exist, and if he does exist, he's probably angry with us. Because we each carry this like latent spiritual memory of that last moment and interaction in our family line of being cast out of his presence. And we see that that relationship was broken. And so then, so is our identity. We see that though we were created in his image and his likeness, when we fell and we took in sin into our very being, into our DNA, 
we then see in this passage in Genesis 5, it's going over the genealogy of Adam. And it says it again, it says, this is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them and called them mankind in the day that they were created. And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own image, in his own likeness. And he named him Seth. And so we see now that fallen man who bore the DNA of sin begets and creates another picture of another fallen man. Over and over and over we have this broken image being created. And so with our destiny. In the garden we were introduced to, to the liar, the Satan. The enemy of God and man. And, and he begins to tell us a lie that God can't be trusted. And we believe him. And when we do, we take on the nature of that lie. And we come into an agreement with the liar. And when you come into an agreement with someone, you relinquish your power to them. And the relational closeness and the identity that was there, we handed over because God couldn't be trusted. And we wanted to do it on our own. And so then we empowered the liar. And our authority was given over to him. And instead of sons and daughters now, we were slaves. Slaves to the enemy of this world, who now became the ruler when we submitted our authority to us. This is what Jesus actually calls him in John 14, 30. He calls Satan the ruler of the world. It says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. And so we find ourselves in a creation to be damned in an existence of one of slave, a slave to a son, a slave to the lie. Because if it's truth that sets us free, it's a lie that keeps us entangled. And we find ourselves in this place of broken relationship, broken identity, and broken destiny. And the world lays in wait, wondering will there come a day that someone will come and bring this back into order? Will there be a time when everything gets made new, where everything begins to come back into the original agreement and the purpose that it was created for? The people of Israel called this the Messiah. And so the world waited for Jesus. And in Jesus, God steps into the picture himself. And Jesus was born of a Virgin Mary to cut off that sin DNA line so that one could come that could play out and defeat death, hell, and the grave and take back the authority that was given. And this was Jesus. And so Jesus comes and he steps into this picture and he enters this scene of, of broken, hurt relationships where there's such distance and such estrangement. And even the people that call themselves the people of this God can't even say his name because of the brokenness. They would call him Lord instead of God. Because it was too much. And in any moment they felt that they could be cast out again from his presence. And then into that scene steps Jesus. And, he, and he, he encounters the people with this incredible language that he uses for God. He calls him Father, Abba, Papa. And the people are hearing this and they're so confused and, and they're offended because no one has ever spoken of God with that kind of intimacy since the days of Adam. 
But Jesus now, living in perfect union with the Father, begins to show us what it's like with that relationship to be restored. He walked step with step with his Father, God. And we can see in Matthew 6, 8, he's teaching us. He says, therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things that you have need before you ask him. In this manner, therefore, pray, our Father in heaven. So in Jesus, this broken relationship actually becomes a family reunion. And he begins to introduce the idea of God, not just a God that we can approach, but a God that we can call Father. And he's showing us a picture of the intimacy now because of him that it's available. It's incredible. And from that place of relational intimacy, that that place of oneness that Jesus shared with God, his identity was one of restored identity. He bore the identity that we were originally created to have. Colossians 1.15, Paul tells us like this. He says that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And then Jesus himself says in John 14.9, he says, Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works in and of themselves. Jesus shows us what it is to be created again in the image and in the likeness of God. He's a picture of what someone with a restored identity can look like for us. Someone who, if you remember when he was baptized, before he did anything by John the Baptist, he came out of the water and Jesus, or, and God tore open the heavens and pronounced a blessing over Jesus for simply being as he was originally created to be, just as he blessed Adam in the garden. And we have a picture of what a restored identity looks like. And from that place of restored, renewed identity, we can see a restored destiny on Jesus, that we can, we can get a glimpse of what we were supposed to look like, of someone who can rule and reign because of their relationship, because of their assurance and their identity. Now they can walk in an authority that no one has ever seen before. This is why it says uh, in uh, 1 John, where am I at here? There it is, 3.8. For this purpose, the Son of God was made manifest, that he might destroy the works of the devil. And Jesus shows up on the scene and he begins, he begins to turn the upside down world right again. He begins to reverse the curse of sickness, death, and disease. And we see that all who were sick receive healing. He's walking in an authority that the Pharisees, that the teachers, they, they marvel at. They've never seen anyone speak with such an authoritative tone. Because of his right relationship, because of his right identity, now he's stepping out in an authority that we were originally created for. Jesus is a picture. He's a prototype. We see, we see death bowing its knee to Jesus. We see the elements bending to his will. The winds and the waves calm. He walks on the waters. He has this authority about him as a ruler over the earth. And in Jesus, we have the perfect picture the perfect picture of what life was supposed to look like. But without Easter, it's only a picture. 
It's only an idea. It's only a glimpse of what God meant for us. But with the death and the resurrection, we no longer have a picture. We have an invitation to participate. We have a beckoning from the one who, who set things right that now we can actually share in this relationship that's been restored, in this identity that's been restored, in this destiny that's been restored. Those can be ours now. This is why it says in Luke twenty-two nineteen, Jesus said, he took the bread and he gave it and he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. It's by the shedding of this blood, this sacrifice that was, there was made a way that we can come back into a relationship with the Father. We don't just get to look at what a restored relationship can be like now. We get to participate in that restored relationship. It's why it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now we have an invitation to participate in a restored relationship. It's not just Jesus' father, it's our father now. And the cross and the resurrection gives us an opportunity to go back, back to the original destiny that he created us for, so that we can share in him with that. And with him, we have a restored identity, an identity that we get to participate in, not just view on the outside, but an invitation to walk again as one who is actually a new person. This is why Jesus uses the language of being born again. He wants us to come into alignment with the original identity that God meant in the first place. It says this in Romans 6.3, or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. We now get to be participants with Jesus in his death and in his resurrection, and we get to become a new creation. The scriptures mention Jesus as the firstborn of a new creation, our big brother. We get to share now in this newness, this being made right. It's why it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The Bible calls Jesus the firstborn. And now when we're born again, when we participate with him, we get to share in that lineage. We get to assume an identity that's no longer broken, we get to assume an identity of son and daughter and king and priest. This is who we are if we've participated with him. And then we get to participate in our restored destiny. Jesus' defeat of death, hell, and the grave that we're celebrating today means that he went and he took back the authority that we handed over to Satan so long ago. We see this in Matthew 28, 18. Jesus came and he spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the, in the spirit, in the name of the Father and of the Son. And so now under this authority that he's reclaimed, he commissions us to go forth in that authority. And then he ascends up to heaven and he pours out the promised Holy Spirit. So we get to participate now in the destruction 
of the devil. We get to see healing. We get to see blind eyes open. We get to see even the dead raised because now we're participants in this restored, renewed destiny that is laid over our lives. Because of his death and his resurrection. It's on Easter that we get to celebrate these things. That we get to come into an alignment of a restored relationship with the God of the universe. We get to come into an alignment with the restored identity of who we were once created to be. And we get to participate with him in a restored destiny. This is Easter. This is why people call it the good news. Because it's good news. You can come home now. You can come home to a family, to, to a place that you were originally created for. At the core of who we are, there's this homesickness for a place we've never been. There's this longing for something that we know was made for more. And, and now the good news of this gospel story is that we can now come home and enter into the relationship and the sonship and the daughtership that we were originally created for. There is a home. And now there's a way to get back. Good news. You no longer have an identity as slave to sin. You're no longer whipped and taskmastered over by the slave of lust and greed and anger. Now we can walk with a new identity. One as a ruler, as a son who's been made right. We can now become a saint, no longer a sinner, as the scriptures say. That's good news. And good news, you no longer have to be under the authority of the evil one. You can now work and participate and begin to see the renewal of all things. No longer are you damned to your situation and your circumstances. Now you're called to move up, to take the authority under the name of Jesus and begin to see sickness healed, begin to see the lame walk. We can now participate in rewriting history. This is the good news. It's really good news. And for some of us, though, it's, it's too good. This news is too good to be true. And for many of us now, we, we hear this story, and maybe the story is something we've heard so often, so many times, but now we, we sit here and we hear all of the things and we say there's no way that all of that actually is offered to us. We create this cognitive dissonance between different ideas that we hear. And yeah, maybe we can go to heaven someday, but, but we'll never be able to walk in a fullness. We'll never be able to walk in an identity that, that is a son and a daughter. We'll always be slaves to this sort of stuff. And so this idea of it being too good to be true takes root. And if you're like me, if you're like a lot of people, you can come to an Easter service with a lot of doubt. With a lot of doubt about I don't know if this is for me. I don't even know if this is real. I don't know if I get to do this. And we, we carry these doubts around with us and they, they weigh us down like chains. And as we move through life, those doubts are, are frightening. The doubts are, are scary. And what we typically do is we typically shove those doubts and those fears down until one day we can no longer hide them. And we find ourselves in, in the middle of a crisis. But there's good news today for doubters. 
There's good news today for people that don't feel like they have it all together, that don't have this unshakable faith that can speak to mountains and see them move, that just have barely enough faith to come through the doors. There's good news for that. See, there's this amazing story that we can read about in the Gospels where Jesus confronts doubt. And he encounters one of his friends who was with him like for the whole time. And this friend saw incredible things. Like he saw the feeding of the thousands with a couple pieces of bread and a fish. He saw Jesus walking on water. He saw all of the incredible things that we think about when we think about the miraculous life of Jesus. He, He was there. But even this was too good for him. It's, it's just too much. Surely God can't be that good. See, after Jesus rose from the dead on Easter, as we're celebrating today, he appeared to his friends several times. And this guy Thomas was one of his friends, and, and he missed some of the first appearances. And so his friends came and they told him, you're never going to believe this. this. This is something that happened. And the implications that this carries, that Jesus beat death and he's here now? Do you know what this means? And Thomas is like, there's no way. Jesus was great and everything, but that's too good to be true. And he doubted, and he has this terrible name now of Doubting Thomas. But there's this incredible encounter that we read about in the scriptures of Jesus encountering this doubter. And it's not what you'd think. It's not what I would think. If you've grown up in, in the mires of religion, if, if you've been beaten over the head with the scriptures, if, if you've encountered people from the church that have wounded you, you, you would expect Jesus to act a certain way. But Jesus approaches this friend who doesn't even believe in such a unique way that, that allows for hope, allows for hope in the midst of our doubts. We see here in John 20, 27, This is Jesus, and he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands. And reach your hand here and put it into my side. Don't be unbelieving, but be believing. It's just like God. It's just like God to redeem even our doubts. There's something about our doubts when we're honest with them that begins to attract an encounter of the presence of God. And only Thomas was the one recorded because of his doubts could actually stick his hands in the wounds that brought salvation and redemption to the entire world. There was something about his doubts and him being honest with his doubts that attracted God to him in such a way that the intimacy that he longed for, that he couldn't believe that it was too good to be true, came to him in a loving and a gentle way way. I mean, if you're like me, we have doubts. This all seems too big to be true. The world is a hard place. And we move and we walk around and we're surrounded by these doubts. And if you're like me, then you think that because you experience these doubts, it means that you're a terrible person. It means that you don't get to participate. It means that maybe those promises are for the the really, really holy ones. The ones that wear like the white suits and and, and the ones that speak really authoritatively. And and, and maybe you feel like that's for them, but not me. 
But Jesus gives us an interesting picture. He welcomes our doubts. But see, what we do is we're so afraid. We still have the mentality of a slave that's going to be whipped at any moment for thinking the wrong thoughts, for doing the wrong thing. And we're terrified to bring our authentic selves to Jesus. But Jesus is waiting, open-handed, ready for us to reach out and to feel him in a more unique way than potentially you've ever felt him before in your life, to begin to experience and encounter this risen savior that maybe you've only heard about. You now have an opportunity, we have an opportunity to begin to participate with him. But if you haven't confronted your doubts, if you haven't been honest about where you are in in your doubts, you'll never be able to experience it because you'll be hiding and you'll be pretending And you'll continue to show up and you'll continue to do the stuff. Or maybe you won't. And before you know it, your doubts have won. Jesus is much bigger than your doubts. He's much bigger than your fear. He's much more kind than you think. He's closer than you realize. And I believe the things that the Lord wants to do today is to begin... to to minister to us in those places of doubts. And I feel like the Lord is saying today, it's okay that you don't know everything. It's okay that you don't have an answer for the things that you're longing for an answer right now. It's okay because that's not necessary to counter me. Jesus, thankfully, doesn't wait for us to have it all together. He's not waiting on you to get cleaned up, to convince yourself of something. He's waiting on you to open your hands, to reach out. In the middle of the doubt, in the middle of the pain, in the middle of even the unbelief, and what you'll do is you'll say, listen, Jesus, I really want to believe. I mean, I'm in a church on Easter morning instead of brunch. I really want to believe. If, if, if nothing else says that, it's that. But I feel so far from belief. I feel so far from the place that I want to be. Would you help my unbelief? It's one of his favorite prayers to answer. Any story that you hear about of people that have this incredible encounter with Jesus, it usually starts off with something that you feel like, Oof, I don't think they should have said that. It starts off with, God, if you're real, if you really are here, would you show yourself to me? And there's something inside of us that says, man, that's a presumptive prayer to pray to God. How dare we ask God to show himself to us? I remember as I was coming into faith, I was beginning to believe he was, he was becoming real to me, but there were things that, that I felt like he was telling me that I needed to lay down. There were things he, I felt like he was telling me to do that I, I couldn't do. And I had a moment where I had a prayer. I said, listen, if you're real, then you have to do this stuff for me. But if you're not, leave me alone. I'm miserable. And in that moment, he came 
so gently. And he did it for me. So you can't make yourself believe. You can't, you can't muster your faith. There's not enough apologetic books or smart people that can talk you into this thing. But when we realize that we don't believe, but man, we wanna believe, so God, would you please come? Would you show yourself? He's right there and he's so kind and he can deal with your questions. He can deal with your doubts. He can deal with your pain that you've carried. He can deal with the hurt that you've experienced. Like, he's ready for that. But the first move is to open our hands and is to be honest with our doubts and begin to move into a place of authentic realization that I can't do this. That's the gospel is that we can't. We could never do it. That's why he had to come. He had to do it for us. God came in flesh to do it for us because he knew we weren't capable of doing any of this. We can't make ourselves have a right relationship. We can't make ourselves have a right identity. We can't make ourselves have a, have a destiny. And I promise you, you're gonna to wanna to try. You're going to want to have your quiet time so you can check it off. Read a couple scriptures so you can check it off. Stop sinning for a couple of days before you come to pray for the thing that you need to ask for. You're gonna to wanna to do those things. But he's here today to say, you don't have to. Like, just, just tell me you're having a hard time. Just tell me that there are things that you don't believe. Like, for some of us, we've been in the church for so long, we're terrified of admitting that there are places in our heart yet that don't trust him. Like, is this even real? And we're terrified of that question. But in that place is where he is. Your doubts are an invitation to encounter him in a way that you've never encountered him before. And as we were praying about today, because today is a day where people that wanna have faith, they show up. And sometimes they show up as his last ditch effort. When we're in Nashville, when people wanna find God, they go to a church, they think he lives there. And in this church, they think he really lives here. But I'll tell you where he lives, he lives in those places of doubt, ready to meet you. He lives in those places of hurt and woundedness, ready to meet you. It's the upside down way of, of God. And so we're, we're gonna take some time and, and we're going to, to worship. And, and here's what we believe. We just don't believe in accidents or coincidences. Just don't. We've seen too many things. The scriptures tell us that our steps are ordered, that he wrote down everything that we're gonna do in a book before he even created this whole place. And so God knew that you were going to be here. And so the question is why? It's not for our great coffee or to look at my hair. It's just not. 
He has a purpose and a plan in this. I mean, he has an idea for us today. Like, like your steps are ordered. You're not here by accident. And so as we move into this time of worship, it's really a time to just ask the Lord to say, Lord, why am I here and what do you want from me? Like, like what is it about today that, that you're trying to say? Where are the places that I haven't given over? Where are the doubts that I haven't been honest with? Where's the unbelief that I've been trying to, to shove down? And I promise you, he's going to begin to reveal those. He's going to begin to move and, and he's going to bring in to, to bring things to your mind. And you're going to say, even that? And as he does, what we're going to do is we're going to move into a time where we're going to have some folks that, that will come behind you. You can come forward. I'll, I'll tell you when. And, and you can come and stand here. And then we have, we have like really nice people that have mints in their mouth. They don't have bad breath. And they're not going to be weird. They're going to come and pray for you. And they're going to let you borrow some of their faith and begin to, to surround and say, can we, can we just move into that place of doubt and allow the Holy Spirit to do what only he can do? Only he can turn that doubt into an encounter. We can't. So if you could, could you stand? We're going to stand. Now listen, there's a couple of things specifically that the Lord is wanting to do today. He's wanting to set a couple of people free from addictions. There's addictions that have been plaguing you forever, and now he wants to put an end to that today. So we're going to have a time to, to pray for that. There's a, there's a couple of people that we believe the Lord is wanting to heal. And so we're going to talk about that in a minute. But for this time, right now, this is a Holy Spirit, would you search my heart? Would you show me those places I, I don't believe? And then confess and say, I don't believe. Help my unbelief, okay? So Holy Spirit, we welcome you here again. We just invite you to do your work, to search our hearts, to begin to show us those places, maybe from long ago, that we've never dealt with, so we can begin to trust you so we can begin to participate in that restored relationship. So we can take on that identity as a son or a daughter and that destiny as a ruler and king. So would you come Holy Spirit? For all upcoming events or more information about the Nashville Vineyard Church, please check us out at www.nashvillevineyard.org. Thank you again for listening, and we hope you have a great day.